Chapter 16 Henry Venn, The Man The seventh spiritual hero of the eighteenth century to whom I want to direct your attention is one who is better known than several of his contemporaries. The man I am referring to is Henry Venn, for some time vicar of Huddersfield in Yorkshire, and later vicar of Yelling in Huntingdonshire. He is the only English minister of the eighteenth century whom I consider worthy to be ranked with the six whose memoirs I have already put together, namely Whitefield, Wesley, Rimshaw, Romaine, Rowlands, and Berridge. These seven men appear to me, in some respects, to stand alone in the religious history of England in the 1700s. Beside them, no doubt, there were many others of noteworthy grace and gifts, but none attained to the degree of the first seven. One reason why Henry Venn is better known than many of his day is the excellence of his only biography. Few men certainly have been so fortunate in their biographers as the evangelical vicar of Huddersfield. In the whole range of Christian memoirs I know few volumes so truly valuable as the single volume of Henry Venn's Life and Letters. In fact, almost the only fault I find with the book is one that is most rare in a biography. It is too short. Another reason why Henry Venn's name is so well known to English evangelical Christians is the happy circumstance that he left children behind, who followed him even as he followed Christ. 1 Corinthians 11 1. His son and his son's sons have all been thoroughly like minded with him. For more than a century, there has never lacked a minister of his name within the Church of England who preached the same doctrine that he preached in the pulpit of Huddersfield. The name of Venn has consequently never ceased to be before the public. When Whitefield and Wesley and Berridge were laid in their graves, they left no sons to keep their name in remembrance. 2 Samuel 18.18. However numerous their spiritual children may have been. But the family name of Venn has been mentioned so often for three generations that there are few English Christians who are not acquainted with it. His true place is with Whitefield, Wesley, Grimshaw, Rowlands, Romaine, and Berridge. Henry Venn was born at Barnes in Surrey on March 2, 1724, within twenty-one years of the birth of John Wesley. He was the descendant of a long line of clergymen, reaching downward in unbroken succession from the time of the Reformation. William Venn died as a vicar of Otterton, Devonshire, in 1621. Richard Venn, his son, succeeded him at Otterton, and after suffering greatly for his steadfast adherence to the Church of England in the Commonwealth times, he died quietly while still in his ministerial position. After him, his son Dennis Venn died as vicar of Holberton in Devonshire in 1691. Finally, his son Richard Venn, rector of St. Antolin's in the city of London, was the father of the subject of this memoir. These facts are full of interest. At the present day, the name of Venn has appeared for seven generations in the clergy list of the Church of England. Henry Venn's father is said to have been an exemplary and learned minister, very zealous for the interests of the Church of England, and remarkable for great generosity toward the poor, and especially toward poor clergymen. Richard Venn died at the early age of forty-eight, when his son Henry was only fifteen years old. The facts recorded about Henry Venn as a boy are few but interesting. 
they are enough to show that from his earliest childhood he was a thorough and determined person who never did anything by halves. In fact, Dr. Gloucester Ridley was so impressed with his energy of character when young that he said, This boy will go up Holborn and either stop at Ely Place, then the London Palace of the Bishop of Ely, or go on to Tyburn, the place where criminals were hanged. The following three anecdotes will show what kind of a boy Henry Venn was. I give them in his son's own words. While Henry was still a child, Sir Robert Walpole attempted to introduce more extensively the system of excise tax. A violent opposition was excited, and the popular feeling ran strongly against the measure. Young Henry Venn caught the alarm and could not sleep in his bed lest the excise bill would pass. On the day when it was to be submitted to Parliament, his boyish zeal made him leave his father's house early and wander through the streets yelling, No excise! until the evening, when he returned home exhausted and with his voice totally lost by his patriotic exertions. A gentleman who was reported to follow the beliefs of Arianism called one day upon his father. Young Henry Venn, then a mere child, came into the room and with a serious demeanour earnestly looked the man over. The gentleman, observing the notice that the child took of him, began to show him some kind attentions, but found all his friendly attempts sternly rejected. At last, upon his earnestly asking him to come to him, the boy indignantly replied, I will not come near you, for you are an Arian. As he adopted with all his heart the opinions that he absorbed, he early entertained a strong dislike of all dissenters. It happened that a dissenting minister's son, who was two or three years older than him, lived on the same street in London with his father. Young Henry Venn, in his zeal for the church, had no hesitation to attack and fight the unfortunate nonconformist whenever he met him. It was a curious circumstance that many years later Henry Venn became acquainted with this very individual, who was then a dissenting minister. He candidly confessed that young Venn had been the terror of his youthful days, and he acknowledged that he never dared leave his father's door until he had carefully looked on every side to see that this young champion of the church was not in the street. Henry Venn's education began at the age of twelve in a school at Mortlake, near Barnes. From this school he moved on to one taught by a Mr. Croft at Fulham, but he only stayed there a few months. He left at his own request under very strange circumstances. He complained to his mother, as very few boys ever do, that his master was too indulgent and the discipline was not sufficiently strict. From Fulham he went to a school at Bristol, taught by Mr. Catcott, author of a work on the Genesis Flood, and an excellent scholar, although a severe master. From there he removed to a school taught by Dr. Pittman at Markgate Street in Hertfordshire, and he finished his early education there. In June 1742, at the age of seventeen, Henry Venn entered St. John's College, Cambridge. He only continued there for three months as he moved to Jesus College in September after obtaining a scholarship there. In the year 1745 he earned a Bachelor of Arts degree. In 1747 he was appointed by Dr. Batty, who had previously been in the care of Venn's father, to one of the university scholarships that he had just founded. In June of the same year he was ordained a deacon by Bishop Gibson, without a title, from the respect that the bishop bore to his father's memory. 
1749 he became a Master of Arts and was elected Fellow of Queen's College. This was the last of the many steps and changes in his educational career. His ministerial life began now, and although he held his fellowship until his marriage in 1757, from this time he had little more close connection with Cambridge. Henry Venn's ministerial life began in 1749 when he was twenty-five years old. He first served the curacy of Barton near Cambridge, and afterward officiated for various friends at Wadenhoe in Northamptonshire, at Little Headingham in Essex, and a few other places. In 1750 he moved out of Cambridge, and became the assistant of Mr. Langley, Minister of St. Matthew, Friday Street, London, and West Horsley, near Guildford. Ben's duty was to serve the church in London during part of the summer, and to reside the remainder of the year at Horsley. He remained in this position continuously for four years until he became the minister of Clapham in 1754. I can find no evidence that Venn had any distinct theological views for a while after he was ordained. In fact, he appears, like too many, to have taken on the holy office of a minister without any adequate conception of its duties and responsibilities. It is clear that he was moral and conscientious, and had a high idea of the conduct suited to the clerical life, but it is equally clear that he knew nothing whatsoever of evangelical religion, and he later regarded his college days as days of vanity and ignorance. One thing, however, is very plain in Venn's early history. He was meticulously honest and conscientious in doing faithfully anything that he was convinced was right. Indeed, he often used to say that he owed the salvation of his soul to the resolute self-denial that he exercised in following the dictates of conscience in a point that seemed itself to be of only small importance. His son explains, the case was this. He was extremely fond of cricket, and was considered to be one of the best players in the university. In the week before he was ordained, he played in a match between Surrey and All England, which excited great interest, and was attended by a very large number of spectators. When the game ended in favour of the side on which he was playing, he threw down his bat, saying, Whoever wants a bat that has done me good service can have that, as I have no further need for it. His friends asked the reason, and he replied, Because I am to be ordained on Sunday, and I will never have it said of me, Well struck, parson. He strictly adhered to this resolution, notwithstanding the objection of friends. Even though his health suffered because of his sudden transition from a course of most strenuous exercise to a life of comparative inactivity, he could never be persuaded to play any more. From being faithful in a little, more grace was imparted to him. His first significant religious impressions arose from an expression in the form of prayer which he had been accustomed to use daily, but, like most people, without paying much attention to it, that I may live to the glory of your name. The thought powerfully struck his mind, What is it to live to the glory of God? Do I live as I pray? What course of life should I pursue to glorify God? After much reflection, he came to the conclusion that to live to God's glory required that he should live a life of piety and religion to a degree in which he had not yet lived, that he should be more strict in prayer, more diligent in reading the Scriptures and pious books, and more generally holy in his conduct. Seeing the reasonableness of such a way of life, 
he showed his honesty and uprightness by immediately and steadily pursuing it. He set apart regular times for meditation and prayer, and he kept a strict account of the manner in which he spent his time and managed his conduct. I have heard him say that at this period he used to walk almost every evening in the cloisters to Trinity College while the great bell of St. Mary's was tolling at nine o'clock, and amid the solemn tones of the bells and in the stillness and darkness of a night he would indulge in impressive reflections on death and judgment, heaven and hell. In this frame of mind, William Law's serious call to a devout and holy life was particularly useful to him. He read it repeatedly with special interest, and immediately began with great sincerity to adapt his life according to the Christian model described there. He kept a diary of the state of his mind, a practice from which he derived great benefit, although not in the way he expected, for it primarily made him better acquainted with his own weaknesses. He also designated the hours of the day, as far as was consistent with the duties of his position, to specific acts of meditation and devotion. He kept frequent fasts, and was accustomed to often take solitary walks in which his soul was engaged in prayer and communion with God. I have heard him mention that in these retired walks in the meadow behind Jesus College he had such a view of the goodness, mercy, and glory of God that his soul was elevated above the world and made him aspire toward God as his supreme good. This was the religious condition of Henry Venn's mind when he first began the active work of the Christian ministry. Earnest, zealous, moral, conscientious, and devotedly determined to do his duty, he put his hand to the plough and went forward. At Barton he distributed religious tracts and conversed with the poor in such an affectionate manner that some remembered him after an interval of thirty years. At Horsley he instructed many of the poor on the weekdays at his own home. His family prayers were attended by thirty or forty poor neighbours and the number of communicants increased from twelve to sixty. In fact, the neighboring clergy began to regard him as an enthusiast and a Methodist. Sadly, his zeal was still entirely without knowledge. He knew nothing whatsoever of the real gospel of Christ, and of course he couldn't tell his hearers anything about it. The result was that for nearly four years of his ministerial life his labors were in vain. However, Henry Venn's four years at Horsley were by no means thrown away. If he did little good to others, he certainly learned lessons there of lasting benefit to his soul. The solitude and seclusion of his position gave him abundant time for reading, meditation, and prayer, and in the honest use of such means as he had, God was graciously pleased to show him more light and to lead him onward toward the full knowledge of the gospel. Little by little he began to find out that Law's divinity was very defective, and that his favorite author did not give sufficient honor to Christ. Little by little he began to discover that he was in reality trying to work out a righteousness of his own, while in truth he had nothing to boast of. He learned that with all his struggles after perfection he was no better than a poor, weak sinner. Little by little he began to see that true Christianity was a plan to provide for man's needs as a ruined, fallen, and corrupt creature, and that the root of all living religion is faith in the blood, righteousness, mediation, and mercy of a divine Saviour, Christ the Lord. The scales began to fall from his eyes. The tone of his preaching, understandably, began to change. 
Even though, when he left Horsley for Clapham, he had not yet attained full light, it is perfectly evident that he went out of the parish in a totally different state of mind from that with which he entered. It was true that even now he saw men as trees walking, Mark 8.24, but it is no less true that he could have said, I was blind, and now I see, John 9.25. I feel sorry for the person who can read or listen to the story of Henry Venn's religious experience without deep interest. The steps by which God leads His children on from one degree of light to another are all full of instruction. Seldom does He seem to bring His people into the full enjoyment of spiritual knowledge all at once. We must not, therefore, despise the day of small things. Zechariah 4.10. We should rather respect those who fight their way out of darkness and seek after truth. What has been won by hard fighting is often that which wears the longest. Theological principles taken up secondhand often have no root and endure only for a little season. Fascinating and curious is the similarity in the experience of Whitefield, Berridge, and Venn. They all had to fight hard for spiritual light, and having found it, they held it tightly and never let it go. The five years during which Henry Venn was minister at Clapham completely settled his theological creed and formed a turning point in his religious history. His work there was very heavy as he held two lectureships in London in addition to his ministerial duties. His regular duty on Sunday consisted of a full service at Clapham in the morning, a sermon in the afternoon at St. Albans, Wood Street, and another in the evening at Swithin's, London Stone. On Tuesday morning he preached again at Swithin's, on Wednesday morning at seven o'clock at his father's old church, St. Antolin's, and on Thursday evening at Clapham. To preach six sermons every week was undoubtedly a heavy demand on someone who had been a minister for only four years. Yet it's not unlikely that the very necessity for exertion that his position required of him was the means of calling forth unrealized power. People never know how much they can do until they are put under pressure and are forced to exert themselves. At any rate, Venn was compelled to learn how to preach from notes out of simple inability to write six sermons a week, and thus he gained ability in extemporaneous speaking, which he later found most useful. From a spiritual point of view, Venn's character was greatly influenced during his five years' residence at Clapham by three circumstances. The first of these was a severe illness that lasted eight months, which laid him aside from work in 1756 and gave him time for reflection and self-examination. The second was his marriage in 1757 to the daughter of Dr. Bishop, minister of the Tower Church, Ipswich. She was a lady who, from her piety and good sense, seems to have been admirably qualified to be a clergyman's wife. The third, and probably the most important circumstance of his position, was the friendship that he formed with several eminent Christians who were of great use to his soul. At Horsley he seems to have had no help from anyone, and whatever he learned there he did not learn from man. At Clapham, on the contrary, he at once became close friends with the well-known Dr. Howice and the layman John Thornton, and afterward with George Whitefield and Lady Huntingdon. Henry Venn seems to have been under particular obligation to Lady Huntingdon for advice and counsel. The following extract from a letter that she addressed to him about the defects in his first preaching at Clapham 
is an interesting example of her faithfulness, and it throws much light on the precise state of her correspondent's mind at this period. She wrote, O my friend, we can make no atonement to a violated law. We have no inward holiness of our own. The Lord Jesus Christ is the Lord our righteousness. Cling not to such poor elements, such filthy rags, mere cobwebs of pharisaical pride, but look to him who has worked out a perfect righteousness for his people. You find it a hard task to come empty and miserable to Christ, to come without any recommendation but that of hopeless despair and misery, and receive from the outstretched hand of our Emmanuel the riches of redeeming grace. But if you come at all, you must come in this way, and like the dying thief, the cry from your heart must be, Lord, remember me. There must be no conditions. Christ and Christ alone must be the only mediator between God and sinful men. No miserable performance can be placed between the sinner and the Saviour. Now, my dear friend, no longer let false doctrine disgrace your pulpit. Preach Christ crucified as the only foundation of the sinner's hope. Preach Him as the author and finisher, as well as the sole object of faith, the faith that is the gift of God. Exhort Christless sinners to flee to the city of refuge, to look to Him who is exalted as Prince and Saviour, to give repentance and the remission of sins. Go on then, and may your bow abide in strength. Be bold, be firm, be resolved. Let Christ be the Alpha and Omega of all you bring forth in your addresses to your fellow men. Leave the consequences to your divine Master. May His gracious blessing rest upon your labors, and may you be blessed to the conversion of very many who will be your joy and crown of rejoicing in the great day when the Lord will appear. The date of this faithful letter is not given. I am inclined, however, to believe that it was written between the time of Venn's illness in 1756 and his marriage in 1757. At any rate, it is a remarkable fact, recorded by his son, that he used to declare that after 1756 he was no longer able to preach the sermons that he had previously composed. Lady Huntington's faithful letter was probably not written in vain. Whatever defects there may have been in Venn's doctrinal views during the first few years of his Clapham ministry, they appear to have completely vanished after his restoration to health in 1757. He was soon recognized as a worthy fellow laborer with that noble little company of evangelists who, under the leading of Whitefield and Wesley, were beginning to shake the land. Based upon his gifts as a preacher, he took no low position among them. Whitefield seems especially to have delighted in him. In a letter written sometime in 1757, he says to Lady Huntingdon, The worthy Venn is valiant for the truth, a son of thunder. He labors abundantly, and his ministry has been owned of the Lord to the conversion of sinners. Thanks be to God for such an instrument to strengthen our hands. I know the news will rejoice your ladyship. Your exertions in bringing him to a clearer knowledge of the everlasting gospel have indeed been blessed. He owes your ladyship much under God, and I believe his whole soul is gratitude to the divine author of mercies and to you, the honored instrument in leading him to the fountain of truth. Testimony like this is plentiful. George Whitefield was one of the last men on earth to be satisfied with any preaching that was not the full gospel. We cannot for a moment doubt that during the last two years of Venn's ministry at Clapham he walked in the full light of Christ's truth 
and declared all the counsel of God. Acts 20, 27. In the year 1759, Henry Venn was appointed vicar of Huddersfield in Yorkshire by Sir John Ramsden, at the recommendation of Lord Dartmouth. He accepted the appointment from the purest of all motives, a desire to do good to souls. The town itself presented no great attractions. In point of income, he was positively a loser by the move from Clapham, but he felt deeply that the offer opened a great and effectual door of usefulness. 1 Corinthians 16, 9, and he didn't dare to turn away from it. He seems also to have had a strong impression that he had not been successful at Clapham, and that this was an indication that he should not refuse a change. His wife was opposed to his moving, and her opinion undoubtedly caused him some difficulty. The result, though, showed beyond doubt that he decided rightly. In leaving Clapham for Yorkshire, he was in God's way. Henry Venn became vicar of Huddersfield at the age of thirty-five, and continued there only twelve years. He went there a poor man, without power or influence, and with nothing but God's truth on his side. He found the place a huge, dark, ignorant, immoral, irreligious manufacturing town. He left it shaken to the core by the power of the gospel, and leavened with the influence of many faithful servants of Jesus Christ whom he had been the means of turning from darkness to light. Few modern ministers appear to have had so powerful an influence on a town population as Henry Venn had on Huddersfield. The nearest approach to it seems to have been the work of Robert McCheney at Dundee. How he lived, worked, preached, and prospered in his great manufacturing parish, how he turned the world upside down throughout the district around and became a center of light and life to hundreds, how his health finally gave way under the abundance of his labors and forced him to leave Huddersfield, and how he spent the last twenty years of his life in the comparative retirement of a little rural parish in Huntingdonshire, are all matters that I hope to tell my readers and listeners something about in another chapter.